Let us pray. Gracious God, we give you thanks this day for your word for us, for the ways that you speak through ancient texts even to us today, and through the ways that you revealed yourself to the prophets of old so that we could be the prophets of today. In your son's name we pray. Amen. So the Old Testament contains several stories of people being called by God, called by God to partner with God in the work of loving, leading, and guiding God's people. These are ordinary people, ordinary people who, however reluctantly, hear and discern God's tugging toward something different, toward a life that's a little bit different, actually a lot different. A path that brings with it the blessings and the burdens of being God's people in the world. Now, we read these narratives throughout the New Testament as well. The disciples, for instance, right? And also others, though, who encounter Jesus and are transformed by his presence and by his actions to the extreme extent that they even drop their nets or whatever else they're carrying and they follow. But the prophetic call narratives of the Old Testament, like the calling of Gideon and Moses and Abraham and of Noah and Samuel and David and Jonah, all of these these call stories of the the Old Testament, these these stories are are inescapable. You, You can hardly read the Old Testament without encountering someone whose life has been transformed by God's claim on them. Ordinary people. About 750 years before the birth of Jesus, Isaiah is one of those individuals called by God. This morning's scripture text that Walt read for us is the calling of Isaiah. And some of the words of this text might be familiar to you. The scene, though, is perhaps one of the most dramatic of all the call narratives. The imagery of these seraphs and the transformation of the temple into a place where God is revealed. These all crescendo to this moment where Isaiah realizes that he isn't worthy of being in God's presence. He kind of panics. Now, I want to back up a little bit, though, because it's helpful to start with talking a little bit about God here. In much of the Old Testament, the understanding of God's presence was that it would kill you to see God. That's God's overwhelming power, the uncontainable power of the one who created the universe. It was was of such a magnitude in their understanding that it would kill you. There are a few instances in scripture where people do see God or where they're in the presence of a manifestation of God, but Almost always, they hide their face for fear of death. The understanding of God, and that's an important word. It's the the human understanding of God, and specifically of God's power, was that God could not be contained in any physical form that humans could see or experience. Again, this was a human understanding of God that was shaped over centuries as people tried to understand who it was that they were following, and who it was that they were worshiping. To be worthy of their worship and worthy of their loyalty, God needed to be stronger and greater than anything else 
in all of creation. All potential enemies, all kings, all leaders, all of creation. And this makes sense because what could possibly be created that is greater than the creator? In fact, this could even become a definition of God for many, and especially many in the ancient Near East, the, the one who is greater, the one who is able, the one who is worthy, the one who is so vast and wonderful that we cannot understand or comprehend or capture or even see them. And so in Isaiah's text, our reading starts with this stunning, shocking, unnerving revelation from Isaiah that he saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty with the hem of his robe filling the temple. When a story starts with, I saw the Lord, it should end with, and I died. Overwhelmed by God's magnificence, I evaporated into oblivion, absorbed by God's greatness, and smothered by God's power and strength. I saw the Lord, Isaiah writes, but he's not killed, is he? Instead, he's brought into a place and a state of worship, a worship that is led by these six-winged seraphs. Now, seraphs are the highest form of angelic beings in scripture. And, and the, the worship, this imagery of the worshiping led by these six-winged fingers, figures who are covering their faces and their feet and flying and calling out to one another saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. Isaiah is swept into this moment of worship. The place is filled with smoke, and Isaiah is joining with these seraphs as they worship God. Each Sunday morning before worship, I have a chance to pray with the people who are leading our worship service. We pray for all of you making your way to worship and I pray with thanksgiving to God for the gift that those of us leading worship have uh, of guiding you all, but for the gift that we all have of being able to worship God, the gift of worship. I often like to ask the question in various settings, why do we worship God? Why do we come to worship on Sunday mornings? And why is worship the central act of the church? Why worship? I wonder what your answer would be to that question. I think that for me personally, I've had various answers at different times of my life and on various days. I know that in the wake of personal sorrow, worship has been a place of comfort. When I've experienced national or international trauma, worship has been a way to speak into the unspeakable moments, a place of lament and of crying out to God. We worship to celebrate. A phrase that many people use is that they come to worship to be nourished and renewed, or to reconnect, or to be grounded. Lawson Farah captured these concepts well when he said one time that he missed treats and friends. He may be young, but he understands quite well the core human needs that are met in church community, treats and friends. And really, all of these motivations are great outcomes of worship, and outcomes often motivate. But our true motivation for worship, 
our true motivation, the reason that worship is central to our act as a church, to our identity as a church, is that God deserves to be worshiped, that God desires our worship, and that God deserves to be worshiped. Like the seraphs crying out to God, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of God's glory. We too are called to come before God in worship. Our text this morning not only shows us worship, but shows us how to worship in a way that is transformational. Isaiah coming before God in this state of worship is overwhelmed and overwhelmed with a sense of honesty. This text is a model for our own worship. Like Isaiah, at the start of our time of worship, we confess to God that we are not worthy of being in God's presence. We confess and we seek to be reconciled to God, and it is through God's grace that in our naming of our sin and in our confessing not just of our own sin, but of the sin of our culture and our community and even our church, in our confessing, we are recipients of God's cleansing forgiveness. And in receiving God's forgiveness and allowing ourselves to begin that transformation through God's love, the freedom we experience leaves us ready to accept God's call on our lives to be about God's work in the world. And then in our worship, we hear the word. We listen to scripture. We listen for God's word for each one of us, breathed by the Holy Spirit into the hearts of those who gather for worship. We listen ready to be further transformed. We listen, and then we respond, going out in the world, changed and ready. Knowing God, experiencing God, worshiping God. None of this is possible without being changed. This is precisely what Jesus sought to do in the world. He sought the changing of hearts and the changing of people. God became human in the form of Jesus Christ to bridge this confusing divide between us, people walking among creation, and the all-powerful divine presence, and to show, and to show true transformation. In the healing of the sick and the broken, in the walking alongside of the sorrowful, the mourning and the outcast, in eating with prostitutes and tax collectors, in standing up to oppressors, in upending the societal norms that were more about power than they were about love. In all of this, in Jesus Christ, God was continuing the transformation that began at the creation of the world. The creation in the midst of chaos, transformation that was happening in the hearts of the prophets as they were called, and transformation that was happening as prophets were seeking to guide others. Transformation that somehow became more real when God's love, God's amazing love, became human in the form of Christ. In Jesus Christ, the invitation to come and follow was and is an invitation to be changed changed by love and changed into agents of love in the name of Christ. God not only modeled that love for us, but Christ grafted us into the experience of knowing God by knowing love. The experience of Isaiah in the temple, an experience once only experienced by few, could now be experienced by each one of us in the act of worship and in that act of being transformed in worship and in the act of then going out into the world as ones who have been changed, 
attuned to bring love and to bring the God of change to others, to invite others into the experience of God. And we experience this in all aspects of our worship, in our confession, in our receiving of forgiveness, in our hearing of the word, and in our celebration of the sacraments. One of those sacraments, the Lord's Supper, recognizes God's incarnation in Christ, that that indwelling of God into the world in the form of Jesus Christ, and then the ultimate gift of love in the death and resurrection of Jesus, Not, not just in the Lord's Supper to celebrate the past, but to recognize that God continues to unite God's people through our desire to understand Jesus and to understand who God is calling us to be. We believe that we're not alone in this and that God continues to be with us ever since that first day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit came upon the church as the giver and renewer of life, helping us to grow in faith and enabling us to follow Jesus. We believe the Spirit is still working in our lives, guiding us, helping us, working through and in us. It is in the Holy Spirit that we experience God's gracious love today, and it is through the Holy Spirit that we are empowered to respond to God's love. It is the Holy Spirit who gathers us for worship and who is present in the sacraments of communion and baptism. And it is the Holy Spirit that sends us out into the world, giving each of us the gifts we need to do God's work in the world. And so you see, wherever we are, God's presence is among us in worship. And and God brings us into worship and designs us for worship so that we can be transformed into the followers of Jesus more deeply and more fully. This is how our Presbyterian Book of Order puts it. Christian worship gives all glory and honor, praise, and thanksgiving to the holy triune God. We are gathered in worship to glorify the God who is present and active among us, particularly through the gifts of word and sacrament. We are sent out in service to glorify the same God who is present and active in the world. I think that's a pretty powerful image of worship. Now, sometimes theology can get a little complicated, and it can get muddy, and we can get lost in it. It can can even get in the way of our understanding of God. And the concept of the Trinity can become one of the most challenging in that way. There's, There's no specific mention of the Trinity in the Bible, and the concept is explained very often with terrible and incorrect analogies and imprecise analogies. And and I've been guilty of this in the past, of trying to find analogies to explain the mystery of the Trinity. In fact, this week in the Weekly Connection, I'm going to share a, uh, a fun video that that pokes fun a little bit at those analogies, but I think you'll enjoy it. I'll I'll share it with you. But the interesting thing is that I've actually just spent the last several minutes of our time together here describing the Trinity to you without using fancy words or even analogies. You might need to go back and listen again at some point. Isaiah encountered the triune God in worship. Isaiah encountered God with power beyond all understanding. 
Isaiah encountered grace and forgiveness, grace and forgiveness as Christ on the cross in the empty tomb. And Isaiah experienced a transformation, a conversion of his heart and his life so that he could go and he could love and he could serve, accompanied by God, comforted and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. The triune God Isaiah encountered in worship is the God we worship this morning and each morning, the God we seek to know by following Jesus and by worshiping and by learning and reading scripture and through prayer and through our relationships with others that are infiltrated by the Holy Spirit, which is beyond our escape, this is the God who deserves our worship, and the God who meets us and changes us in our worship, and my friends, the God who invites us into that mysterious partnership, asking us that question, that that question that stirred Isaiah into action and that stirs us, that question that divine question, who will be changed? Who will allow themselves to be changed? And, and the way that, that this heavenly voice asks the question, perhaps on behalf of Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, the question, who will go for us? Who will go for us? In the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.